Welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery and mental health. Enjoy. There's 23 million people struggling with addiction. Whatever your answer is. Lift the shame and stigma of addiction. Don't choose anything that will jeopardize yourself. Look, you can face this, even though you think you can't. You can. So find your own recovery story. Own it. Embrace it. Work through it. Each and every one of us matters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast. I'm your host, Chris West, and today our guest is Krista Hales, right? Yes. Yes. She is running the 2020 Black Monday event. Yes. And tell everybody what this Black Monday event is. So Black Monday is a awareness event that Tin High or There's No Hero and Heroin hosts every year. This will be our seventh year. It started in 2014. And basically what we do is we get a bunch of community resources together, have a giant resource fair, connect individuals to anything they may need in the community. And it's kind of a safe space for us to bring together people who may still be in active addiction that don't know where to start, um, individuals that are in recovery that want to celebrate their recovery, or families and friends that have lost individuals that want to fight this epidemic with us. And so everyone gets together. We do this resource fair. We have big keynote speakers. We do Narcan and overdose prevention trainings. We kind of just get everyone together to combine and and fight this as one. Uh, last year it was relatively big. Like there, I went. There were a lot of people. Uh, I had a little table. So it's it's grown every year. Um, I've actually been involved since the second one. The oh, very so this is year five. Yeah, this is year five for me. The very first one was actually a garage sale in 2014. That was a bunch of parents that got together some things, did a big garage sale, made $800 and donated it to a sober living to pay for a month of treatment for someone. And it's just grown year after year after year. And last year we had a little over 600 people. So mm. we're expecting a little over 800 this year. So it's continuing to get bigger and bigger. Last year it was at UNLV. Yes. Uh, where is it this year? This year it's at Central Christian Church in Henderson. So we now have a venue that we can continue to grow this with because we have a capacity of 10,000. So, oh, at this church? Yes. Oh, wow. So so we can keep growing this and hopefully stay with them for a while because um, we, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. The biggest thing I remember last time is there were a ton of tables set up from all these different uh, nonprofits, companies that all, all get together. We do. The resource fair is pretty diverse. We have everything from 12-step meetings to treatment facilities to mental health treatment to housing, medical facilities. They're all there because every single one of these areas is is touched by addiction in some way. And we have to all be together if we're going to make a dent in this. You know what it reminds me of? What? You ever heard of Comic-Con? Yes. It's like Recovery Con. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. We should just start calling it that. Yeah, Recovery Con. Yeah, I like it. We'll we'll pitch it to Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for everyone listening, Joe 
Ingo, he's the president or, of Ten High? Or what, what, founder, direct, founder, jack of all trades. Director. Yeah. <laughs> uh, supreme leader. Yes. <laughs> all of the above. And Ten High is actually the only, you know, unofficial, slightly official sponsor of this podcast. Yes. Um, we have an office in there, Alternative Peer Group, which I enjoy coming to. Uh, it's called APG. APG for short. Yeah. Uh, kids come here and play video games and uno and ping pong and just have a place to interact in a drug free drug free uh setting yeah they're actually doing some pretty cool things here they started like equine therapy in december What's that? horse therapy animal oh, wow. therapy yeah so the kids get to go i think right now it's scheduled once a month and they get to go do um animal therapy with um their executive director caitlin here mm-hmm. who is kind of my new co-host yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, we're, she's we're, awesome. She yeah, was, we're, we're getting that going slowly but surely. She's She's been a good fit. She's done a lot of things with these kids in the last couple months. So I hear very good things. I like her a lot. Resource fair. You have a resource fair and then you have classes. Yes, we have overdose prevention, um, Narcan training classes that uh, Dr. David Slattery, who's the chief medical officer for Las Vegas Fire and Rescue, so he goes over signs and symptoms of an overdose, how to respond, how to administer Narcan. And he's actually this year also doing chest compressions. Um, so he's going to have all the dummies so everyone can practice chest compressions too um, in that training. Did they have that last year? They did. Yeah, because um, I remember doing the uh, chest, com- ch- chest compressions in the dummies last year. Yeah, and we actually, because of the bigger venue, we were able to provide more spots in each class. So there's two classes and there's 60 spots now in each class. So we're going to be able to train more people on how to respond to an overdose. So you have the classes, you have the the resource fair, and you have speakers. Uh, last year you had um, a professional athlete was there. Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, football player. Yes. And then... Uh, Joe spoke and quite a few. Did you speak? Yes. You spoke as well. Yeah. So I did a, we do a, we added this last year, actually. We did a community update where we let everyone know kind of what all of these organizations are doing to combat the opioid epidemic in Las Vegas. So how many syringes our syringe exchange program gave out and how many overdose prevention classes there were in the city, how many people entered treatment, things like that, because Sometimes that information doesn't get down to the people who really need it because unfortunately our news and our media only wants to cover what they feel like covering. And so things like that don't always get out to the public to see what all we're exactly doing. Where do you get these metrics? Uh, the community agencies themselves reported them. Oh, wow. So for instance, like the agency I work for, Center for Behavioral Health, we did a community update on how many people entered medically assisted treatment in the year prior. Um, Track B, our syringe exchange program, reported how many syringes they exchanged and how many co- they collected and mm-hmm. um, things like we had new programs, open new facilities. So we announced those things like that. And so you have a new keynote speaker this year. We do. That you just confirmed, you said about three and a half hours ago. Three and a half hours ago. Um, do you want to tell everyone who that is? Sure. Um, I'm going to officially make the announcement tomorrow, which when this airs will be a little late. But um, our keynote speaker for 2020 is Court McGee. He is a current active UFC fighter and in recovery. 
Um, and he's come and he's talked in Las Vegas before to our kids at Mission High School last year. And we're super excited to have him this year because he has a very unique story to tell. Mission High School is the recovery high school. So he, he spoke there. Um, he's in recovery himself. Like you said, he has a very inter- interesting story. And he was the 2010 winner of the Ultimate Fighter. Yes. Which is the, the TV show slash competition mm-hmm. UFC has. Yeah. Season 11. Um, he won and it was about five years after he got sober. And he kind of dedicates the hard work that he got into it from getting into recovery and putting his focus on something else. And hopefully uh, here in a few minutes we can get him on the phone. Yes. That would be exciting. Yeah. So we can kind of start to talk to him about what makes him want to continue to give back to the community because he speaks all over the country now about his story. Before we get, we, we try to call Mr. McGee, you've been on the show before. Yes. But just to give a quick rundown, uh, why, why are you involved with Tin High? I got involved with Tin High, like I said, about five, six years ago. Um, I lost two family members to suicide by overdose and I wasn't handling it well and I was working in the addiction field so I was surrounded by it all the time. I had heard about Tin High. Um, I had seen a news story about Joe and I reached out and I said, hey, can I come to an event? Can I just see what you guys do? It was the second technically second Black Monday, which was like the first actual event other than the yard sale. And I was hooked. I was like, this is my place. This is where I'm going to be able to process my grief. This is going to be my outlet. And I've kind of just helped sporadically here and there over the years. And then two years ago, Joe asked me to be on the board to kind of get a little more involved. And I've just ran with it since then. And now you're running it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so I'm officially secretary on the board now, and then I oversee um, the Black Monday event. I'm the lead for that, as well as Rock for Recovery. Okay. I went to Rock for Recovery last year. Yeah. At um, Brooklyn Bowl. Yes. It was fun. It'll be same place this year. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. We're working on booking our artists and everything now, but um, usually between... August and February, my focus is on Black Monday. And then from February to May, I focus on Rock for Recovery. So those are the two big events. Those are the two that I cover. Yes. Um, We technically have three really big events. We have Black Monday in February, Rock for Recovery in May, and then our big annual golf tournament in September. Um, I remember the golf tournament last year. Yeah, last year. Yeah. I wanted to play, but I had to work. Yeah. The golf tournament is our biggest fundraiser. So Black Monday is more awareness based where we're just trying to get resources to the community, connect people to each other, um, let everyone know that they're not in this alone sort of thing. Uh, And then Rock for Recovery was specifically designed for us to be able to provide scholarships to the graduating seniors from the recovery high school. But the golf tournament is specifically for fundraising for Tin High so that we can keep doing what we're doing. It's good to know like exactly what these events are going for because, you know, people listening can participate. Absolutely. And they know, and exactly, and know exactly what they're participating in. And where their money is going towards, yeah. what it's being used for. And, and it's all good stuff. Absolutely. You know, Tin High does a lot of good things. ABG does a lot of good things. Mission High School is doing a lot of good things. I can't wait to get the 
principal in here and talk to her. Yeah, they've got a lot going on over there. It's, yeah. it's amazing to see how much it's grown in just the two years it's been open. What have been the most difficult things setting up Black Monday? This year was actually a lot easier. I think the more and more we get word out about it, the more people that want to volunteer to help. So I have people to delegate things to. And the new venue is actually super, super helpful this year. They have majority of the things that we would normally have to set up at other okay. venues. Tables so, and whatnot. Tables, things like media. Like we don't have to worry about cameras. Oh, that's Central, awesome. Central has their own recording system since they go live with all of their church services. Um we don't have to set up rooms. We don't like we're going to have to set up bare minimums and usually set up is where things go downhill. Yeah. So with this new venue being very, very professional, it was actually a lot easier this year. And I think it's just going to continue to get easier as we get more and more people involved. And they're they're in it for the long run, you're saying. We're hoping so. Yeah. So Central actually has Central Recovery, too, which is uh, a member of the 12 step community. And it, Central Recovery has a huge following. So we're hoping that once this catches on with them and they see the benefit to their to their church, um, they'll, they'll continue to want to be involved. And they were super excited to be involved this year. They didn't hesitate at all. They helped us meet our budget. They 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 really wanted to be involved. That's amazing. It is. It was a sigh of relief that we didn't have to debate things like how much the venue was going to cost us and things like that. Like they were just like, yep, sure, let's do it. So how hard is it to pick a keynote speaker? Very, <laughs> very. Um, we've had good ones. We've had bad ones. We've kind of gone through ups and downs on this. And we obviously learn lessons from each one. Um, but for this year, when we met Court last year at Mission, he, we knew he, we wanted him involved for quite some time with Tin High because he was just so personable and he, he spoke for about 45 minutes at mission and then signed autographs for everyone that was there after. And when he was signing autographs, he spent 10 to 15 minutes with every single person that was there that he was signing for. He was showing the kids moves, the ones that were interested in. Spending them in arm bars and stuff. Yeah. He was doing all <laughs> kind like the the people that were there that have lost someone he was talking to them about his feelings with grief and the the it was just amazing to watch him do that because you don't see celebrities do that very no, often not, anymore not really i mean he was only supposed to be there for about an hour and a half and i think he was there for almost six hours wow. because he spent so much time just getting to know everyone and and so when we were getting ready to start planning Black Monday, we kind of knew right away that that's who we wanted because we wanted to give him a bigger audience to tell his story. I'm sure it's not the biggest audience he's talked to because I, I follow Maybe. him on social media and I, I know he's spoken okay. to some pretty big audiences, but um, he just has such a cool story and he's such an, a neat person to know that this year was a, a, a little bit easier because we kind of knew right away that that's who we wanted. Should we try to get him on the phone? Sure. Let's see if we can. So we're calling UFC fighter Court McGee and hopefully he'll answer. Hello? Court? Yep. Hi, this is Krista with Tin High. How are you? Good. How are you? Pretty good. I just pulled over on the side of the freeway 
because I knew you were calling. Awesome. I'm here with Chris. Chris is our host for the Recover Everything podcast. How you doing? I'm doing good. Good. Really uh, good. I super appreciate you taking the call. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm glad I could be here. I'm, I'm um, first off, uh, for people listening, you're Court McGee, you're a UFC fighter. You're also a person in long-term recovery, correct? Yeah. And would you kind of touch on that a, a, just a little bit? I don't want to, you know, we just kind of announced on the show that you were going to speak at the Black Monday event. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want you to give too much away, but uh, just kind of let people know what's going on and what you do in the community. Yeah. So I, I, I got, I got sober April 16th, 2006. So, uh, I have like, uh, yeah, I'm coming up on 14 years of sobriety. So that's like, uh, a little over 5,000 days of continued sobriety. So I got sober at 21 and I, and I just turned 35. So I've been sober almost all of my, all of my twenties and now half of my thirties. Um, congratulations on that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, court. and I met I met my I met my wife on, on the soccer field at Lake High School, my my uh, sophomore year in high school, and we we dated for about about three and a half years, and then we split up because of my drinking and my using, and then we reunited by accident in a bowling alley. And we were both engaged to two other people, and several months later, we ended up uh, uh, not like ending our relationship with the two people we were with, and then reuniting, and uh, we ended up getting married about a year later. We've been married now for you know over a decade. I have two sons, one that's twelve and one that's nine. So my my entire my entire uh, like professional career as a mixed martial artist came after I got sober. Both of my children came after I got sober. Uh, my marriage came after I got sober, uh, rebuilding the relationships that I had lost through my addiction in those four or five years have all been, uh, uh, you know, taken care of. And I have, I have, uh, family and friends. I'm trusted in my community. It started, uh, speaking at high schools uh, about nine years ago, maybe eight, eight and a half years ago, I was asked to speak at a high school for the first time. And then the interaction I had with some of the students was profound. And so I continued to pursue speaking at high school, kind of at that influential stage because it was influential in my life. And then the few kids that would come up after and talk to me about their situations, I would uh, try and find uh, a solution for whatever issues they were dealing with. And that turned into the 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, tell me about the McGee project. So that's what the McGee project is, is, is the speaking. So we put on okay. presentations. Um, and, and, uh, I, I have, uh, I have, uh, the 501 an executive director who kind of puts the, puts the, you know, he, he's like the foundation of, you know, meetings and, and the business side. And then we have a board of directors and then these guys that meet, that help, uh, from all walks of life. Um, but maybe are more influential in, in high school. Like we, we have, uh, you know, some people that are in local politics. We have some people who have been in education for 30 or 40 years. Uh, we have somebody who, so, 
when I go to a high school, a lot of times I like to speak to counselors. And one of my uh, uh, board members has been a counselor for 30 years and found it very difficult um, in, in helping kids that struggle with addiction. And so he came, he heard me speak at some point, was like, hey, you know, I would love, I mean, it was incredible what I saw and how open students were with you. I worked for 30 years and I had a hard time getting just a handful of kids. And you had a handful of kids at every presentation I came to. Can I come help? And I said, absolutely. And so it's like getting into the education system, getting into local schools uh, or getting into the school system uh, where we can speak at uh, middle schools, high schools, alternative high schools, juvenile justice, uh, universities. Um, and, and it's like, uh, that's kind of the foundation. But when we go share, it's like, uh, it brings up questions in people's lives or situations. But in the United States, like, like we focus so much on the dare program of saying just no, but then when people did go out and, and, and start drinking or, or smoking pot or, getting prescribed pain pills or Adderall or amphetamines or, or things like that. It's like all of a sudden they fell back victim to addiction. And as a society, we say, oh, well, it's where they grew up. But now we can't say that because it's people from all walks of life. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people fall victim to addiction. And in my opinion, it's because maybe the disease of addiction was inherent in their personality a long time before they, they, they drank or used, and at least in my situation. So when I share that, it, it brings up conversation, and then, you know, students come up after or kids come up after or clients come up after from these facilities or these different places, and then they start to ask questions. I'm starting to build a network uh, that can help those individual kids in individual situations. Like currently we're working on uh, a program where we'll help uh, kids get into gyms in the areas they are, give them a short membership, a couple of months where they can get in, get their feet wet, if they're interested in getting into mixed martial arts. And so it's like, it's, it's a program that not only educates and informs kids on the disease of addiction and how it affected me personally, but it educates kids who don't know that it's possible for them to fall victim or it educates them on how my parents thought that it wasn't going to happen to me because I was a really good student. And because I was an athlete, I just got into a little bit of trouble. And then I fell victim to it. And just 18 months out of high school, I overdosed on heroin and was pronounced clinically dead. So it's just, it's kind of like, not only is this education, but it informs students that, maybe don't have problems with addiction and and there's not a lot of programs there's not a, there isn't there isn't a program specific for that except for small programs here and there that are doing work one-on-one and i don't know it just it turned into what it turned into you know essentially after sharing my story and so i've continued to work on delivering to different audiences and um it's just i don't know it, it's it's really, really, it's been an incredible experience. And I love meeting, you know, all these people from different walks of life. But, you know, what, what, what draws the crowd sometimes is if a high school finds out it's a UFC fighter um, and there's going to be a UFC fighter coming and talking about addiction, 
it's like sometimes there's kids that are skipping school or not there for some reason, and then they find out a UFC fighter's coming, and then all of a sudden you have a few of those kids that, that didn't want to be there or were skipping school to show up. And I get an opportunity after I share my story and some of the cool experiences I've had, um, and, and they come up and they ask me about it, and then they start to tell me their personal story. And so it's just, it's been like this crazy experience, but that, that's essentially like in a nutshell what the McGee Project is. It sounds great. Um, where can people uh, find, is it, like, there's our website and whatnot? For so, that? yeah, it's the McGeeProject.org. Okay. Uh, and they can go check it out. I know they're re- revamping the website right now, but they can pull up here shortly or maybe even now they'll be able to pull up uh, quite a few of the events and pictures from the events that we've been to and done over the last couple of years. Um, and then we continue to work. They can also contact us through that. There's the contact at mcgeeproject.org email, and they can go on there. They can contact us if they're interested in having us come present at their, you know, their uh, detention center or middle school or high school or college and a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that, that contact us through that. There's also a phone number available on there if they need to call or if they're interested in talking or, or booking um, a presentation at their at their school. And, I mean, I, I, I spoke in Harlem, New York, the state senator, and Katriana Gray, the current at Universe, about a month or a month and a half ago. And I just got off the phone... Um, we're looking at speaking at a university here in Utah in February at some point. And I spoke at almost every juvenile justice facility in the entire state of Utah last year. And then the year before I spoke to about 48,000 students in total. Yeah. Oh, like throughout the country and and, and whatnot. Yeah. So it's been uh, been kind of a wild, crazy ride. Just uh, happened by chance, but I had had an opportunity to share my story, and then I, you know, I continued to work on sharing my story to different audiences, and it's taken me from like, uh, a, you know, a state prison to like a uh, home group meeting of a church uh, for youth. So it's kind of like I've I've been all over the map sharing my story of kind of being a pretty average kid, an average student, uh, an athlete to, you know, drinking and then the effect produced by the drinking was elusive and kind of triggered this disease of addiction. And then uh, I injured myself wrestling and just being kind of a rowdy kid. And the mix of the pain pills and alcohol uh, took everything from me, you know, just 18 months out of out of high school and six months after dropping out of college mm-hmm. and to a point where I overdosed uh, in my cousin's trailer on heroin. That's where you almost died, right? Yeah, I was actually pronounced clinically dead for, for like seven or eight minutes. So uh, they were doing CPR, so there was oxygen provided in my brain, yeah. but it didn't. I my heart wasn't beating. But he used Narcolone and reversed the effects and then induced me into a coma, and then when I came out of the coma, I was introduced to a role model of the solution. So I ended up being like a 60-year-old Southern California guy who had 20 years of sobriety and was a former heroin addict. And after five minutes of talking to him, I know he knew how I felt. 
and he offered me like a few suggestions to help me make it out of that. And I, I trusted what he had to say because of the story that he told me. And so from that point on, I listened to him and I had a few slips, but about, you know, 10 months later, I achieved sobriety and I've maintained that sobriety for, you know, like almost 14 years. So this, uh, this guy you're talking about, he came to the hospital to meet you? Yeah, so he was a licensed clinical social worker, but he also, too, had over 20 years of continuous sobriety. So, it was just kind uh, of continuous recovery. So it was just kind of serendipitous, this the social worker happened to have 20 years? Yeah, it was, it was uh, I mean, it was uh, incredible. So he was the licensed clinical social worker. I don't know if he worked at the hospital or if one of the doctors had a relationship with him, but I was a young kid who overdosed on heroin, and they hadn't seen a lot of that at that hospital, but by chance, he knew this guy who was a licensed clinical social worker that specialized in drug addiction. And he came in and he talked to me and, you know, made a few suggestions, uh, made a few calls to a couple of uh, drug rehabilitation centers and said, hey, I've got a kid that, that needs an opportunity to get sober and, and, and probably fits the description of uh, somebody who needs long-term recovery. So it was just uh, one of those, you know, crazy things that happened. That's pretty amazing. How long after, you know, being in recovery did uh, you you decide you wanted to start giving back? And like, how did that start coming in into into your life? Well, it, start, it started really soon. So um, I originally, I went to a drug treatment facility and in that drug treatment facility, they had a 12-step program like meetings. And so I started attending these meetings and a lot of these people in these 12-step meetings are talking about service work, giving back feeding sobriety and then turning around and helping somebody who didn't know it was possible to stay sober. And so there's a process that I went through. Um, and I just, I just saw that like service work in general, you know, maybe holding a door all the way through, maybe there's certain things in my life that if I shared that with another person, it would, it would allow them to trust me that I had been through an experience that they had been through. Um, and by telling that and then, and then showing them a way to take care of some of the fears that they have on a daily basis or focus on practicing like a few little things every day, like prayer, meditation, maybe reading, maybe attending recovery meetings or finding a group that you could, uh, be surrounded with people who have long-term recovery or have achieved long-term recovery that maybe one day at a time you could not only not use, but become a different person or somebody that you thought you could never be. And so I started practicing that even before I knew I was practicing that. And then the night that I overdosed, there was a undercover narcotics officer who was called and he came in uh, he found the syringe that I overdosed on. It had fallen in between the linoleum and the wall, so nobody had saw it at first. He found it, like, uh, through his detective work, and he called in and said, hey, it's a heroin overdose. And at the time, they didn't know it was a heroin overdose because I didn't have a bunch of track marks and I didn't have any charges, uh, like, for drug possession or possession of heroin or anything like that. So if he wouldn't have called... Uh, they wouldn't have known it was a heroin overdose, therefore I would have died. Therefore, you know, it was like he's partially responsible for me being alive. And then 
few years later, um, you know, I went through my amateur and some of my professional career. I had an opportunity to go on to the season 11 of the Ultimate Fighter. I made it on there, and by chance, I was given an opportunity to make it into the finals. I made it into the finals. I won the Ultimate Fighter, and then I dedicated my, my fight to all those who were struggling. Uh, whether it be addiction or whatever. I mean, I was, I was primarily directing it towards people in addiction. Um, but you would only know that if you followed the show and you, and you heard my story of overcoming addiction. And so shortly thereafter, I was called by a detective who said, you know, this is detective so-and-so. Um, I actually hired a guy who was there the night you overdosed and it was, and it was the officer who found the drugs that I overdosed on. And he said, listen, I'm putting together uh, this program at the state capitol building in Utah. Would you come and share your story of overcoming addiction and becoming this professional athlete and being the ultimate fighter? And at this time, it was kind of the height of my career. I just won the ultimate fighter. I'd had my first fight in the UFC. It was on it was televised. It was a big thing here in Utah. And I had already shared my story a number of times, and I'd already started helping people um, who were new to recovery. And so I had just jumped on the opportunity to be of service. And I went up there, I was scared to death, but I shared my story of overcoming addiction. And there was a, two judges that were in the room and one of the judges had lost his son to addiction. And it, it opened his eyes that there were people that made it out and I was about the age of his son. And so Inevitably, I went up and I shared my story, and that that led to me speaking to the Utah Indian Narcotics Assembly, which is every undercover anti-narcotics officer in the state of Utah, and some DEA, and some like uh, sheriff's departments in rural communities who didn't have drug task force. So I shared my story in front of you know maybe about a thousand officers, and in a rural community in Emory County, Utah, which has a really high overdose rate, uh, they asked one of the sheriffs asked after speaking at their little uh, program, would you come speak at the high school? I think you'd be really influential being a professional fighter and having the story of overcoming addiction and being the Utah native. So I said, yep, absolutely. Uh, and at that time I had signed to fight uh, Robert Whitaker, the, the former UFC middleweight champion. And so two weeks before I fought Robert Whitaker, uh, I went down and I shared my story at two different high schools and two junior highs. And so that, that's what, and, and, and after speaking at that first high school, Emory High School in Emory County, Utah, uh, I had students come up after and just opened up, immediately opened up and said, hey man, I'm having a problem. I've been drinking too much. I want to stop. And, you know, another kid jokingly saying, oh, I have a friend who drinks and takes pills. And, you know, and then 10 minutes later, he said, hey, that, that friend that I was talking about was me and I'm really struggling. What do I do? What's the first step towards me getting help. And through my personal experience, I was able to suggest a few different things and, uh, you know, find a few contacts with people in that area who were in long-term recovery and then help connect those people. And so from that, that's kind of how it started and how and, and why it is that I go and share. But when I look at it in, in, in whole, a big part of my recovery is, is, is giving it away. Sure. So not just keeping it and becoming this professional athlete, but a big part of my recovery is, is, is giving it away. That allows me to stay sober. That's what ensures my recovery for today is that I'd be open to giving it away. And so when I was given an opportunity to share my story, even though I was 
scared to death to stand up in front of a thousand or two thousand high school students and share how I miserably failed in, in, in most people's eyes, but then used it to my advantage to go out and compete at the highest level in the world and stay focused on training every day. Um, and that they would get some inspiration from that. And not only that, but turn around and ask me, you know, for suggestions of how they could get out of situations they were in or how they could become better wrestlers or become professional athletes or pass tests. And for me, it came down to being able to show up and to work hard. And I learned how to show up in recovery meetings. I learned how to show up by not drinking and not using and then practice every day with prayer and meditation and taking time for myself to think about what I needed to do and, and hit goals for the day. And so that's kind of how it started. And that's why uh, I continue to do it. There seems like there's a, a lot of parallels between uh, like the, the discipline that you, you would need to a, you know, compete at that high level and, you know, maintain this level of service and, and recovery. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some luck involved with it. And sure. then there's a lot of people involved with it. Kind of like right now, when I speak to young athletes who are trying to make it to that next level and, and become professional athletes, like say in the US, UFC or Bellator or the PFL or some of the big, bigger organizations. And I tell them with confidence, like you need to have, you need to be business savvy as in start a business and start thinking financially how you're going to support yourself as a professional athlete. And so for me, it's kind of like uh, through my experiences, just in mixed martial arts, by camp, uh, one of the first people I met in recovery was an accountant, a CPA, a certified personal accountant. He was able to give me advice and help me start a business, help me learn how to set aside taxes, how how to budget uh, generally budget with my small family, how to live off of that and then save money so that when I needed training camp or needed money to take care of travel expenses, that I could do all those things. And so it's like, who knew I was going to run into that guy who was going to help me run a business. So now, you know, 10 years later, I'm still competing in the UFC. And part of the reason why I've been able to do that is I've been able to set aside money to train for camp, to take care of my family. And I haven't spent lavishly and fell down the path that a lot of professional athletes fall down. And that's, you know, losing all their money, spending all their money, uh, not having enough money for taxes, and then not having enough money to train, and then worried about losing where they're going to live or how they're going to eat. Then they can't focus on showing up to the gym, you know, five or six or eight or 15 times a week so that they can be prepared to compete at the highest level in the world. But it's like, if I wouldn't have ran into that accountant, I mean, several years ago, when I injured my hand and a couple of surgeries went bad, I would have ran out of money if I didn't set a lot of money aside. And my family would have went without, and I would have had to get a job to to support them, and I wouldn't have been able to continue to compete. But here it is, 10 years later, I'm still able to compete I have enough money to compete. I have enough money set aside. And then on top of that, you know, it's like I, I try to max out uh, a retirement account every year so that, you know, at 65 years old or 59 and a half years old, I'll have money for my retirement. And, you know, it's like... Uh, it sounds smart. Yeah. 
Uh, from all this, uh, kind of the theme I'm getting here is that you get incredibly lucky or, or somebody is completely looking out for you up there. Yes, yeah, so definitely somebody's looking after me, but, but also too, outside of that, with the exception of the last couple of years, it's, it's kind of like I dedicated my life to hand-to-hand combat and mixed martial arts. I've always had a passion for that. Like I, I, I only played this one season of t-ball, but outside of that, I was in, I was in uh, Shintoshi Karate for about 10 years. And then I got into wrestling, and I wrestled at a pretty high level, and I competed, in, and, and um, then I got into jiu-jitsu, and then I competed in jiu-jitsu, and then I got into boxing, and I competed as an amateur, and then as a professional. And then I went, so in saying that, I, I, I've done the legwork. Sure. As I've, I've put in in excess of 10,000 hours over the last 27 or 28 years of practice. Um, and so I put in so much time that, and I have, have natural abilities, but the work ethic and, and the work that I put into it has allowed me to compete at a high level. Whereas you, you go to the recovery side of it, just, you know, thir- over 13 and a half years ago, uh, I got sober and I practiced my recovery every day. As in I, I use prayer, I use meditation, my constant thought of others. I read inspirational like uh, uh, literature in the morning, this recovery base, and then that's the first thought on my mind. And so the practice one day, two days, 5,000, uh, 18 days later is kind of the same. And so therefore, I can, I can, uh, I can, I can use my ex- expertise um, in, in practical application um, of working those things every single day, not to mention that's kind of the number one thing in my life and the people that are surrounded in in my in my inner group are all people in long-term recovery and so I draw inspiration from them so a lot of it has to do with luck like running into the accountant yeah. um, or like the story but, you said with and, your and wife definitely having you know uh, a belief in a higher power um, has, has helped me tremendously but I can't discount the willingness to not pick up and use one day at a time. The willingness to want to change. The willingness to show up to the gym when I don't want to show up to the gym. The willingness to even show up to the gym when I have torn ligaments or a busted finger or a laceration and, and change. You know, it's like you can't discount the willingness to want to work. Yeah, that discipline and, so, and hard work. And I think that was instilled at a young age by my parents. They're both, you know, they're both... Uh, hard, hard workers. And that was taught to me at a young age. And so, you know, it's like I was born into a family who taught me to work hard at a young age and never give up. So I think that was instilled in me at a young age. It's just, when I shot up for the first time, it's like uh, the feeling was so elusive that I no longer worried about work. I no longer worried about my parents. I no longer thought of anything except for where I was going to get my next fix. And so I lost, I lost all of this in the mix, but then after I sobered up, I felt that I had all this energy, but I didn't know where to put my energy towards, so I went to work. But while I was work, I found ways to do chin-ups. I found ways to do head movement drills. I found ways to, like, hold on to pipes, to carry pipes to build strength. You know, and that's all I would think about. And then when I got into the gym, I could really let it out. And then when I compete, I can really go out there and perform and show what I've done. And it's the same thing with my recovery. 
um, I stay sober. I, 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 uh, I, you know, I, I attend recovery meetings. I surround myself with people who are in long-term recovery. And then in turn, by speaking, it opens up conversation with people who maybe don't know that it's possible to stay sober one day at a time for long periods of time. And, and so I can share my story and help, you know, inspire, uh, courage or some faith that it's possible. And then, you know, if I build a relationship with that person, not only can I share how I've done it, but I can show them how I'm doing it. I've, I've been incredibly lucky and incredibly blessed, but also too, I, I got to a point where I was willing to listen. I was willing to learn. I was willing to show up. And that's been the story of my success in, in anything in my life. It's, it sounds incredible, uh, obviously. Um, I did, I wasn't trying to uh, discount any of that hard work that you were, you oh, were talking no, no, about. No, no, no. Because obviously you, you've done loads and loads of hard work. So you are definitely putting in the hours of reaching out. and. and you know, it's like it, it's my driving force to show up to the gym every day. Or it's my driving force to make sure I hit my head on my pillow every night completely sober. Because if I don't, I lose those opportunities. And those opportunities that I've been given are my driving force to continue to walk forward in the face of fear. And I think, Court, you kind of touched on this when you were talking about your story and why you continue to do this and so forth. But our theme at Black Monday this year is actually families in recovery. And we're kind of centralizing everything we're doing this year about how important our support system and in keeping that sober sobriety one day at a time. And you kind of epitomize that when you talk about your family support and your social support that you've had in your recovery. And you just kind of touched on that. But I think it'll be super important for everyone at Black Monday to hear how your family support really helped get you through this. Oh yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for my parents, uh, I mean, I would, I would be here. You know, it's like my dad is a casual beer drinker, and my my mom, she, you know, she doesn't drink. But it's like you go back a generation or two generations, and there's there's alcoholism, and then you go out generations, or if you go out to my first and second cousins, there's there's addiction all throughout both sides of the family. My parents uh, didn't fall victim to that. Although my dad drinks, I don't think he's an alcoholic. Um, you know, in, in 40 years of marriage, I've never even seen him raise his voice to my mom. Um, he's the second largest donator in a history of blood donation in Utah. Uh, he got a Hero of City Award. Uh, he worked for 35 years on Hill Air Force Base as a fuel mechanic and electrician. And he was always supportive no matter what I did. And then my mom on the other side, she's very, uh, she's, she's, uh, she's very stern and she's strict and she follows like certain guidelines because she had a really hard upbringing. And so she always wanted like a family unit where she didn't have dinners with her family. You know, we always made, my mom always made sure that we had dinner every single night. And that we learn how to clean our rooms and make our beds, and we learn how to mow a lawn and, and and trim the grass, you know. And so and 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 we did those things together. But but it's like my family was so important, and they're so proud of me. Like my dad comes to a lot of my fights, 
my mom, she's at my house right now watching my older son. You know, like they would do anything for me, um, but they see that I'm willing to go the extra mile. I'm willing to stay sober. They see the work that I put into being, to trying to be a good parent, to trying uh, to be like a good student of martial arts, to try and be a, 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 a professional athlete that that I think my sons would look up to. Um, so therefore, she supports me. And I got a lot of that inspiration and a lot of that knowledge, a lot of that understanding of life principles and life values from my mom at a young age, even when she was cutting me off. And so it's just like my family is so supportive. Uh, when I ask for help, they're there. Or sometimes when I need help and I don't want them, they're still there. And so that that is like knowing that you have somebody on your side is important. Even if they are not a great example, they can still be an example. Because not every parent has, has, maybe they have good intentions, but their actions aren't good. As in maybe they struggle from the disease of addiction. And the son or daughter they have picked up and started using because their parents said that it was okay. But that can be a great example of what you don't want in your life when you grow up. But maybe they have the financial uh, ability to, you know, help move on. Or maybe they have, um, you know, like maybe, maybe, Maybe it's, it's an example, but it's a great example of what they don't want to be. So therefore, they take another direction. Yeah, I, I think family, like the family support is, I mean, it's a bond, you know, that you, you can't explain. The situation that you were just explaining is kind of the basis for this entire podcast. I have a family member uh, in active addiction right now, and yep. it's kind of the, you know, catalyst of that's not what I want to do. Um, I love her very dearly. She's one of the most beautiful people I know. She has her own yep. demons. And that's kind of, like I said, the base of this podcast is I kind of wanted to figure out recovery for myself, you know, not being a person in long-term recovery. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, maybe she'll get to a point where, where, where she can take some of that from you. Uh, I'm hoping. But if you didn't go out on your own and find that support system and, and, and do that. It doesn't mean that she doesn't love you. Maybe she's not capable of showing you the support necessary to foster, you know, recovery, but that doesn't mean that you can't love her and show her love, but maybe through separation and building relationships with people in long-term recovery. Completely agreed. Well, I know everybody at Tin High and Black Monday event are extremely excited to hear you speak. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to come back, and it'll be it'll be really really cool. I, I did. There was a junior high that had this after school program, and a lot of the kids that were involved with the after school program brought a parent or sibling to the event. So I spoke um, in an event similar to that uh, here in Utah, and it was several years ago. But it was great after meeting and talking to some of the. The, the kids and some of the parents uh, and some of the siblings about their experiences. And I mean, I'm really excited to come. Yeah, we're, we're, we're all definitely extremely excited. Yeah, we definitely can't wait to have you back. I have one final question and it's, it's, it may be a little ridiculous, but what was scarier going up to speak for the first time or, or going in the octagon for the first time? 
Oh, for sure. Speaking in front of Emory <laughs> County High School. I share that. I, I, I remember thinking like, okay, listen, you are, and at the time, I think I was ranked in like the top 15 or 20 in the world. And I'm like, I'm one of the baddest dudes on the planet. And, and to give you some sort like background, when I was five years old, I was left at an amusement park or separated from the group at an amusement park when I was five. And I, I, uh, I hid behind this little hot dog stand in between these garbage cans so nobody could find me. And so I stayed there. I was dehydrated. I was there for like 10 hours and I was wow. scared to death. And after that, I had a lot of issues with crowds and, you know, and whatever else. And my parents helped me, uh, build self confidence. They put me into martial arts. So you fast forward, you know, uh, 20 years and I have probably 8,000 hours of, of competition in all around badassery, professional jujitsu, all this, all this stuff. And I'm, I'm like one of the baddest dudes in the world. And I was like shaking when I walked up to that stage. And then, and then the icing on the cake was the officer who, or the sheriff that came up that, that, that booked the engagement that had me come said, Hey, listen, the principal and the, uh, the superintendent don't want you here speaking to the kids. They don't want a UFC fighter drug addict speaking to their kids. So when you go up there, don't drop the F bomb. Uh, and please don't mess this up because I might lose my job. <laughs> Thanks, dude. I appreciate that. But then I got up there and I was scared to death. And I thought in my head, what in the hell am I going to tell these kids? And then my story just came out. And after that, as soon as, soon as I started, I got calm. And I realized it was my story. It was overcoming addiction and, and possibly... There was somebody in that audience that needed to hear my story and needed to talk after the event. And that's exactly what happened. So definitely speaking to, you know, 1,200 high school students or whatever it was was way scarier than my first fight in Grand Junction, Colorado. Well, thank you, Court McGee, for coming on my show. I am eternally grateful. Hey, man, that's my pleasure. Uh, I can't wait to maybe hopefully meet you at the Black Monday event. Again, thank you so much. This was a blast. I'm so glad I got to talk to you. Big fan. Hey, likewise. Thank you. We'll see you in a few weeks, Court. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. So that was Court McGee, everyone, uh, UFC fighter. Uh, you can find his foundation at Court Mc- or the McGeeProject.org. Uh, Krista, do you want to tell everybody where they can find out about Black Monday? Sure. So Black Monday right now is being promoted through our Facebook and Instagram page. So if you follow There Is No Hero in Heroin Las Vegas, you'll find the event page through that for Black Monday. It's February 10th. Uh, doors open at 4 p.m. at Central Tr- Christian Church in Henderson. Like I said, we have Narcan trainings, resource fair, and we obviously have some very big speakers that yeah. are going to come tell their story that night. I did not think he was going to stay on the phone that long, but it was amazing. Awesome. Yeah, that's the kind of person he is, and that's why it made it easy for us to pick him this year. Yeah, can't wait. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Krista Hales, for coming on the show again. Absolutely. And follow us at Recover Everything on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that madness. You can find the show at recovereverything.com, which I'm sure because you're probably listening to this right now. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Thanks.
can listen on all the major streaming platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Give us a rating on that iTunes, Apple podcast thing. We uh, need them. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything. Go to our website, recovereverything.com to tell us a story, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.